You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at Home and Abroad, and recently I had the opportunity to read a wonderful book on an aspect of Irish history that most of us would pay very or little no attention to. And it's got to do with both Irish cultural history, Irish immigration history, and Irish sporting history. And the book is called The Irish Whales. And even the title, if you're not familiar with the terminology and where it comes from, what it's about, you kind of think, what's that got to do with Irish history, and particularly sporting history? Well, the author of the book is Kevin Martin, and Kevin is based in the west of Ireland, uh, under the shadow of Crow Patrick, if, when the sun is shining. And um, Kevin has a number of books under his belt, but we're going to talk initially about the Irish Wales. Kevin, thanks a million, first of all, for coming along and to talk about the book. Thanks, Austin. Um, the Irish Wales is the story of a number of Irish immigrants who represented the US and Canada in the Olympics in what was known as uh, field in rather than track and field but the field component of the Olympics and uh, a fascinating story about these people um, first of all what got you interested in telling the story well um, I, previously I wrote a book about the history of the Irish pub and a lot of it was about 19th century New York and the role of the saloon and I came across these larger than life characters these Irish whales, these NPD officers, and I just became fascinated by them because they were huge heroes among the Irish immigrant community at that time, the early decades mostly of the 20th century, but have somewhat faded from history. Uh, and I should say you mentioned field, and they were specifically throwers. For example, they, the hammer, the shot put. At one time you used to throw a 56-pound weight in the Olympics, that went by the way. So they were these were huge men that specifically were throwers. Awesome. And on that aspect of it, what I found fascinating was when it came to Irish athletics, and you talked about uh, the establishment of the GAA, that the throwers were being disadvantaged under the Irish system because yes. the track was given some degree of preference and I found it interesting how uh, the track meet was scheduled for a day that would be inconvenient for the throwers if you'd yes. like to talk a little about that yeah now with the, I should put a proviso that the, these particular whales uh, more, the, the majority of them immigrated at a young age, so their experience of track and field in Ireland was limited, and they blossomed, if you like, in the new world in America. But you are correct in what you're saying. There was a, yeah, there was a, an emphasis put on, on the track, on the ability to run, on stamina, but that was specifically coming from the former British influence. Now, the GEA, the GEA uh, wanted to emphasise more on the field, because they were trying to present this image of the virile, strong, brought of a boy, uh, son of a new emerging nation. So the GA went towards the field disciplines, whereas historically the British, who had a hold on Irish athletics, obviously because we were part of Britain, um, emphasised the track. So Ireland, in many respects, is very much the home of throwing disciplines 
along with, you could argue, Scotland, of course, with the Highland Games. What I also found fascinating that the rules around track and field athletics yes. early on were very yes. specifically discriminatory. Yes, yes, you had to be a gentleman amateur, and uh, that, that narrowed it down completely. I mean, what they didn't want, then now again, we're talking about when athletics in Ireland was influenced by the British system. See, they had the Irish Athletic, IAAC as was, but they were, it was British run. So you had to be, for example, you had to have a profession. You couldn't be somebody that just works for a landowner, for example. So th- this particular class division also helped the DEA hive off their own organisation and their own athletic competitions. And they made us... Uh, something for everybody. Under the British system, for example, there was no competitions on Sunday, whereas with the GA, Sunday was the day of leisure. It was the opposite. So, and likewise, I, re- I recall that the rules like that tra- um, travelled across the Atlantic to the extent that um, professionalism, yes, was defined as even being expensed. If for your yeah. out-of-pocket expenses to the yes. extent that that was adequate to exclude uh, what would have been those who were not sufficiently um, well-off yes. to be able to, to engage in these sports. You see, when you look back at it now, first of all, it was a very nebulous and grey area. Um, now people would say a lot of these athletes were compensated in various different ways. For example, the whales were NYPD officers, but they were given huge latitude in their jobs to, because the, the New York police was very proud of them. So they spent a large proportion of their time uh, training, not on specific policing duties, if you like. And they were helped also to get to these uh, Olymp- various Olympic Games that they would have competed in. So you're, you're right, yeah. The primary, for example, then the primary athletic club, the preeminence, I should say, athletic club in New York was the NYC, NYSA, the New York Athletic Club, and that was very much the um, uh, the bailiwick of uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They excluded Irish immigrants. Now, however, ironically, when they heard that there was the likes of Jim Mitchell, who was the very first of the Irish Wales, and then John Flanagan, who were world beaters, who were better, vastly better than any native, sorry, people that were American-born, they were quite happy to take the cream of the crop into their club. Yeah. And, and likewise, <coughs> the um, whole aspect of what I found fascinating as well was that, you know, you're right, uh, that to bring this into its context, and we m- mentioned early on that this was in the early um what was the early 1900s, the late 1800s. And I think it's important to put that in context because what you had were these people, Irish-born, representing the U.S. at the first and second, third Olympics in modern times. Uh, up to the fifth iteration of the Olympics, yes. Yeah, yes. First five Olympics. And again, what is fascinating in that is that here, um, where I know there was a move at the time, and you, you highlight this, there was resistance that these immigrants were not American-born and they should not be allowed to represent the U.S. Yes, yes. There were nativist uh, 
expressions in the media particularly. Interestingly that they were largely confined to the east coast, to the sorry, to the west coast, which there weren't a huge number of immigrants there. If you look back in the Los Angeles Times, there was some articles there, I guess. Uh, as they became successful, I suppose it's a little bit like America itself, uh, the establishment and the media were quite happy to adopt them because they brought glory to the United States. And the elements, the Yankee waspish elements, I mean, they've seen, they faded into the background really over time. And anyway, we withdrew from sports. Sports was below a lot of them. You know what I mean? In the New York Times, famously, the editor used to call the, the sports uh, department the toy department. I mean, it was of only marginal importance to right. them. And I think that's where, again, what you've done and the work you've done has catalogued what is a change over a period of time in a societal, uh, the aspect of how sport uh, became a more uh, integrated part of society. And then how some of this also transcended into politics. Yes. And how you relate the story of Tammany Hall and the know-nothings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was so closely linked. I mean, people know that possibly the direct link was the Irish, when they went to America, knew the benefit of politics. They had seen the ballot was more important than any bullet. And they set about systematically uh, dominating the Democratic Party machine in New York, specifically Tammany Hall, as it is called. And Tammany Hall then, of course, being the... Uh, the giver of gifts, the bestower of the pork barrel jobs, gave the NYPD, gave the fire brigade, gave the teaching jobs to Irish. And so you had this whole thing of people ask, well, why were the police in New York 90% Irish at the turn of the 20th century? It was because they controlled the democratic machine who had in their gift the jobs to give. And then within these ranks, you had this group of Huge, big, and they were ways to Austin because they were huge men. I mean, two of them were six foot six and over 20, 22 stone. And they were the pride of the force. They were, the, they were these guys that you could look, look at what we've brought from Ireland. Can America provide people like that? Show me an Italian like that. Show me a Jewish athlete like that. And they became heroes and they became, they helped, they certainly helped Irish assimilate and integrate and get respect in the new home in the United States So Kevin I want you to tell the story of Baltimore the restaurant in Baltimore um, the reservation the reservation that was made in, and where it may be where it's possible that the name Wales may have been attributed to Yeah well the Wales is a term that became used in retrospect at the time it didn't but then in retrospect uh, there are various theories, Austin, I'd have to say. I mean, but largely uh, the most predominant motif is the fact that they could eat so much. <laughs> that they each had one sitting, you know, a huge amount of food, multiple chickens, and, and so on. But I don't remember the precise details. You'd have to edit that one out. But, uh, well, my recollection is that they made a reservation in a restaurant in uh, Baltimore and that yeah. the restaurant set the tables up for 30-odd oh, yes, people. You threw me with Baltimore. I don't know if it was Baltimore, but yes. And, and, and then these guys, only uh, six of them landed in. They had set the table for 30. 
And they said, where are all the other people? He said, that's all there is. We, you want all that food? We want all that food. Now, you would have to say, it was probably exaggerated. Uh, and also, you would have to say that's only one story of why they might have got that names. Another theory is that, for example, uh, the police uniform of New York was this bluish uh, grey colour. And when these guys had their tunic on, they were literally looked like whales. So, those things was a little grain of salt. <laughs> but that's what makes a good story. That's what makes a good story, exactly. So, so let's run down through the whales, because some of the whales have now uh, been acknowledged, and I know there's, I think, a statue was it in Charlestown, but give us a rundown who the whales were you know, and, and what they achieved. They have all been acknowledged now, at the, if you're talking in terms of statuary, uh, if that's the word. The very first of them was Jim Mitchell from Emily in Tipperary. Uh, he was he, he, he was a massive man. And, and it's funny, if you look at the pictures in the book of him, when he was a youth, he was a high jumper and a sprinter. And it's almost impossible to look at him as a high jumper. But what happened when he was 18, he broke his ankle. And obviously... He was like he did take to the dinner table after that because he became a massive man, and uh, yeah, he immigrated to New York, won the weight throwing title for eight years in a row, the American title, and was the preeminent title. Now he didn't get a chance to throw, and he did one chance in the Olympics, but it was when he was later older, so he only got one medal. But the next great guy, the second of the Wales, was John Flanagan came along from Kilbride and Limerick. Limerick, Tipperary, Clare was kind of the axis of throwing, very much those counties. And Waterford, there was a famous guy called Tom Colley from Waterford. He wasn't one of the Wales, though, but he did compete against them. Now, Flanagan has an achievement that was only once ever equaled. He won three gold medals in a row throwing the hammer at the Olympics. Uh, and he has been well acknowledged, and there's a fine statue to him down there. And so on, a remarkable man. Next, and uh, the next up is, I'm from Mayo, as I said, from our own native son here, Martin Sheridan. Now, Martin Sheridan stood out among the whales as because he was a multidisciplinary athlete. He, he, he unusually, he'd be like a modern, say, decathlete, where you, they couldn't both run, throw, and jump. And that was unusual at that time. And he was the world's best at that, without a doubt. Arguably Ireland's best ever athlete, you know. Uh, to such an extent, for example, and I won't go through the medals they won, but that will take too long, but there was a version of the Olympic Games called the Intercalated Games of 1906 in Athens. And at that particular Games, Martin Sheridan won six individual medals. And the King of Greece, who oversaw the Games, was so impressed that he built a statue of Sheridan just after the Games in Athens and he gave him a, a ceremonial bamboo vaulting pole, which is still on display in, you mentioned Charlestown, it's not quite Charlestown, it's a small village near Charlestown uh, called Bohola. And if you're ever passing, you'll see on your left-hand side a bust, a statue of Martin Sheridan and if you go and ask kindly, they will allow you in to see the memorabilia there. So there you have now the first three main whales. You have Jim Mitchell from Emily, James Sarsfield Mitchell was his full name, John the modern Hercules Flanagan, 
That was his sobriquet. And Martin Sheridan from Mayo. Okay. Yeah. you? Continue. Okay. <coughs> so now it, it's it's interesting, and it's particularly interesting from a Canadian point of view. But I'll come to that in a minute. So next up was an absolutely the biggest of the whales in size, and his name was Pat MacDonald from Doombeg in County Clare. Doombeg might come to some people's mind because Mr. Trump <laughs> has a golf course there these days. Um, and he was, he, his nickname was ironically Pat Babe MacDonald. He was six foot six, almost, the pictures, you have to see the pictures to see how actually big he was. He was, for almost 30 years, the, tra- the head traffic policeman on Times Square. And he was known by the people as the uh, Statue of Liberty of Times Square. He, he, he was that big. And he was uh, predominantly a shot putter. And again, a number of titles. And contemporary Aeneas uh, to Babe, then you had a man called Paddy Ryan from Limerick, another great uh, thrower. Limerick has a strong history of throwing. And also, we must mention, and this is where the Canadian connection, one of two Canadian connections come in, is a guy called Con Welch from Carrigamine near Mill Street in West Cork. He was the only of these whales that was not a member of the NYPD. He moved to New York. He worked for Con Edison. He went then, immigrated to Canada, and he competed for Canada and there was some confusion over this at the 1908 Olympic Games in London. There was a 1-2-3 in the hammer toe competition for Irish-born athletes, and he took the bronze medal behind two of the other whales. Four years ago, he was inducted into the Ontario Athletics Hall of Fame. Subsequently to that, he uh, did become a police officer, ironically, because he moved to Seattle, and where he became a famous coach. So they seem to have a natural affinity for... Uh, being policemen and waitrowers. And now there's one guy that is sometimes, some people uh, include him as an honorary whale, just in case for your Canadian listeners there. There was a guy called Simon Gillis from Newfoundland. His parents were Irish extraction. Now for, I didn't include him in the book because oh, yeah, for a narrative incoherence, he wasn't born in Ireland. Right. But say if people want to read up about Simon Gillis. Uh, we consider him an honorary member of the fraternity. And Kevin, there was another temporary person there. Yeah, I suppose if Martin Sheridan was the best all-round athlete, Matt McGrath from Nina was the best thrower. Now, the reason I say that is in 1912 at the Stockholm Olympics, McGrath, he was an absolute monster of a man, if you look at pictures of him, um, set a world record that wasn't equaled for 24 years. Now, that was incredible, really. At that time, to set a record that lasted for that long was remarkable. And he was a seriously talented hammer thrower. He brought the sport into a whole, to a whole new level. And uh, a most admirable character rose very high in the NYPD to be an inspector and... Uh, highly regarded man in the in the Irish community in, in New York and revered too I have to say in Nina uh, the uh, lovely 
at you to the courthouse if you're ever passing that way. And as I understand it, their technique or the technique of some of the whales was effectively adopted as being the technique in yes, order yes. and and that book and uh, one of one of the guys um, became uh, wrote a book on this that's right mitchell the very first guy the other tipperary man from emley <clears throat> later in his career in 1919 wrote a book how uh, how to be wet or and he used all the other whales except for conwich there that was in uh, seattle he asked them to write a chapter about the hammer the shot with the 56 pound weight and just in terms of technique, Austin, it was John Flanagan, the guy that won the three up from Limerick, that won the Olympics in 1900, 1904, and 1908, that invented this new technique of circling three times with that hammer. Prior to that, it was two circles, and prior to that, it was just one. With three, obviously, you develop much more momentum, but you had to be more accurate because the hammer could go and... Just on a sidebar, Simon Gillis, the guy that I mentioned from Newfoundland, when he was practicing in New York, uh, he killed a child. He was practicing in a field near his apartment, which I think was in Upper Manhattan at that time. And yeah, and he was very put out about it, and he went away from hammer throwing for a while, but eventually went back to it. Fantastic. Now, the other thing that I found fascinating was how that uh, on the way back from the Olympics, they came to Ireland and this, yes. uh, there was such a reception in Ireland. Yes. And also yes. that then there ended up in, I was down in Parque Creeve in Cork, um, yes. that there was uh, rivalry between two of them there at the same time competing. Yeah, uh, well, see, this is, yeah, this is where I mentioned your fellow Washford man, Tom yes. Kiley. And going into the story is going into the politics, really, of Ireland, of the difficulties between Ireland and Britain, but to cut a long story short, Martin Sheridan had represented the US at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis. Tom Kiley was at that Olympics and won a gold medal in the all-round competition, but he was adamant that he was competing as an independent athlete, that he was not representing Britain and Ireland, as it was then, you know, the, it was the Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. It was an, and so there has been debate down the years as, you know, the, could you have competed as an independent athlete? And he consistently uh, said he was. So the competition organised in 1908, Austin, was between Martin Sheridan, who was on his way back from a tri- triumphal uh, showing at the Olympics in London and Kylie. Now it has to be said, Kylie was past his best by then, uh, and they had a competition. Uh, it was it wasn't in Park Creek, It was in Dungarvan. Okay. And uh, what's the Fahar Field? Is it or what's it called? Uh, maybe I don't know. I can't say I know. Yeah, it's yeah, and uh, it was the best. They had seven individual contests and. As is the one sometimes with these things, it was, the whole thing was declared a drawn contest at the end. <laughs> but it was very much manipulated to be a draw. Now, I don't want this having covered the whole book that nobody wants to read it, but I do want to cover one other incident. And that was yeah. probably in the same 1908, was that when it came to the Olympics and the London Olympics, yeah. um, it was an Irish person who was carrying the American flag. Yes. And it led to... Uh, uh, 
diplomatic incident of sorts. The more, this is the most debated, the most contested, uh, the most mythologized uh, event surrounding this particular group of athletes. But the fallout of it was, as people will know, the American flag dips to no other leader. That's a historical thing. And people, it is dated to the 1908 Olympics when it was actually an American that was carrying the flag, Ralph Rose, a huge, he was called the Beast of Heidelberg. He was a monster shot putter. And he was needled by the Irish athletes who were following behind, the Irish who were represented. Don't, whatever you do, don't, don't uh, but, uh, drop that flag to the Irish king because we don't recognise that king as the king of Ireland. Who said it? You see the various accounts of who said it, but there was those whales were behind Rose in the group and he was not going to be ganged up on by them and he did, he did, he duly did not dip the flag and, and then uh, it has become, as you know, a massive record and recorded in the House of Representatives. Indeed. As, uh, so Kevin, as I said, I don't want to, we can't be telling the whole story, but we've hopefully I've given uh, been able to give a good flavour that would encourage somebody to yeah. say we need to pick this book up, up and yeah. we need to get the full story because it is yeah. a great story and it's a great read. It, it's a it's, it's a story that needs to be told because these things fade from memory and particularly I suppose the Irish in America are associated with being successful and business and. Uh, politics and sometimes the sporting success gets pushed by the wayside in both the US and I should say Canada, now I, I, I do mention because you have already, but look at the story uh, particularly of Con Welch or Walsh and the honorary whale Simon Gillis of Newfoundland they both are intriguing as well Indeed. <clears throat> so Kevin if somebody wants to get their hands on the book I know they can get it on most of the online booksellers but uh, uh, is there a preferred bookseller you would like to direct uh, well, them to uh, at the moment I just see that it's published by a publisher called Roman and Littlefield they're based in Maryland they just have a particularly good price on it at the moment Indeed. Uh, and it would make so, an ideal Christmas gift yeah anyone that has an interest in Irish history you know, in in, in sports, it's a perfect our, our American social and cultural history. Yes, yeah. I, would, I would say that. And uh, so any of your other books? Uh, where might anybody get the Irish pubs? Yeah, there and I wrote um, my first book, which was successful, was Have You No Homes to Go to? The History of the Irish Pub. Yeah, that's on Amazon. I wrote a guidebook, the best pubs in Dublin. Ironically, with the pubs closed, most of them now with COVID, <laughs> and that's and then I wrote a book. Uh, a journey to the world of Irish country music. They're all on Amazon. I have a home page on Amazon USA. But the best value for the Wales book at the moment would be Roman and Littlefields. Thanks, Mel. Well, Kevin, it's been fantastic having a chat. It's been great chatting with you. And uh, um, uh, are you working on anything at the moment? I am. I'm doing another book to take data, but I can't. But it does involve uh, sports, Irish people who immigrated to America in sports. And that's okay. all I can. That's okay, excellent. Kevin Martin, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Awesome, thanks very much.